Hello and welcome. You are listening to an informed take on current events brought to you by law students and staff of Queen's University Belfast. This is LawPod. Okay, so uh, hello and welcome to LawPod. I am Lauren Dempster. I am a lecturer at the Law School at Queen's University Belfast. And today I am really happy to be joined by Dr. Melanie Klinkner from Bournemouth University. So in our podcast today, we are going to focus on the protection and exhumation of mass graves, in particular talking about the role of forensic scientists and also related issues surrounding the right to truth. Before we delve into these topics in a bit more detail, Melanie, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, thank you, Lauren, and thank you for having me on this podcast. Uh, so my name is Melanie Klinkner. I'm a, a principal academic in Bournemouth here, and I teach international law, international criminal law and human rights law. And uh, my research, is, as Lauren has already said, uh, surrounds mass graves, forensic science, forensic expertise, forensic evidence, particularly for transitional justice mechanisms such as international criminal tribunals. Okay, Melanie, one of the things uh, that we particularly wanted to talk to you about today was the Mass Graves Protection Project. So could you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. Delighted to. So um, I'm currently leading a mass grave protection project that seeks to develop guidelines. Uh, Why do I have this project? Well, mass graves are an all too frequent legacy of conflict and and gross human rights violation. So um, they really are a you know, something that, that scars the geographical, societal and, and political landscapes because they are real sites of, of horror and horrific violence very often. And so there's, there's two aspects that, that I'm very interested in. I mean, firstly, for the survivors of, of such events, they really need to know what happened to their loved ones, so the fate and the whereabouts of their loved ones, and to hopefully receive the mortal remains for burial and dignified commemoration mechanisms. And then on the other hand, it's also important to sort of safeguard the mass grave evidence because that's essential for uh, truth, justice and and accountability mechanisms for survivor populations. So that's the rationale behind it. Now, um, mass graves have been um, investigated in the past and there are a number of of good practice approaches in operation amongst the various actors that, that operate in the field. But what we're lacking at the moment is is a universal shared or common standard that would sort of set up out at least the minimum standards that are required. And so the point and purpose of this mass grave protection and investigation project is to produce guidelines that would bridge that gap. Um, so it will produce guidelines um, by a participative and consultative process. So it's not just me; it's a it's a it's a team of experts that come together from a lot of different disciplines. Um, and to discuss and, and progress the guidelines. And so there's two outputs here. One is the, the international guidelines that we're seeking to produce for the protection and investigation of mass graves, but also um, from a more academic perspective, we're c- compiling a, a, a commentary for the guidelines that would reflect on the underpinnings and the discussions and the rationale that led to the various provisions that we have stipulated in the guidelines. 
Yeah, so it sounds like really um, interesting and important work, Melanie. I guess in terms of your progress so far, what are you finding to be sort of main challenges or barriers that exist in terms of protecting mass graves? Mm. Well, um, I should also say that for the purpose of the project, um, it's funded by the Arts and Humanities Research Council, and I'm teaming up with the International Commission on Missing Persons. So that really helps get firsthand experience from mm-hmm. practitioners on on uh, on the ground. And so what we've found is that the first challenge is to have really safe reporting mechanisms in place, so that mass graves can actually be reported when there is suspicion that they might exist or when they've been discovered. So that sort of information on the location is is really important uh, and how it should be recorded in a safe manner. And then secondly, another challenge is, well, how do you verify these reports, particularly in conflict situations? So that has to take place before we can actually get to the physical protection of a site, which is also naturally essential to preserve the integrity of the of the human remains and and the evidence in, in the mass grave. So securing site and access in practice means that legal permission to access the land needs to be sought and, and it needs to be granted. Um, very often it involves community liaison because um, they might want to be involved and, and they obviously uh, have, a, have a big stake in this. Consent needs to be obtained in practice very often. And then uh, other factors also come into it. So access to such sites might be might be um, affected by culturally significant sites, so for, for example, archaeological and historical uh, sites. So that that also needs to be be, be be thought about. And so the level or the type of protection measure, measures that um, mass graves can can have are just fences around the parameter of the of the actual mass grave. Then um, very often you need to protect them horizontally as well to ensure that there's no um, scavengers or, or birds <laughs> coming on top of it. So you, you really want to have coverage to protect surface lying remains. Uh, you might need security guards and on-site monitoring or off-site monitoring through some um, camera systems and, and uh, satellite system. So securing the site, um, uh, you know, really requires certain safety measures for those that offer the protective measures uh, and the public sentiment may may in these instances be against uh, those safeguarding uh, people as well. Um, So with protection, however, I think it's worth flagging up that there comes another challenge for mass graves, and that is that when you start putting protective measures in place, you also risk drawing attention to the mass grave site. And that might then increase the interest and inadvertently increase the danger of, of destruction because people tend to be interested in these sites and may wish to have a look or, or may feel that um, there's incriminating evidence in it. And that's what we've seen in, in Bosnia, where we have primary gra- graves that then were reburied in secondary graves and tertiary graves. Yes, of course. When you when you talked about sort of community involvement and I guess broader public interest in these sites. Um, are you aware of particular tensions at these sites between the need to protect graves for exhumation in the future um, and future identification and perhaps the needs of families who might want immediate exhumation? What are the sort of the main factors to think about in those sorts of situations? 
Yeah, I think there's a lot of uh, things that need to be considered. And first and foremost, I think one has to just recognize that the anxieties of the families and the desire for them to want answers quickly um, is clearly there. And, and we should recognize that and understand it. Um, at the same time, I think it's also important that we don't generalize what might happen at a particular grave. So mass grave and mass grave investigations can be really very context specific. So sometimes it might not be possible to retrieve, identify and repatriate all victims that are in a mass grave. And that is likely to have implications for the families of the missing and, and the affected community. Uh, in addition, this may affect perceptions of justice and justice-seeking activities um, domestically, but also then, then internationally, where exhumation form part of a, a judicial process. So th I would say that communication, communication plans and communication channels uh, are really crucial and the managing of expectations in these contexts so that you don't just parachute in uh, and, and investigate without engaging with the local community, uh, but also that if it needs to take a little more time before an investigation is forthcoming, that again, that is also communicated effectively. Um, so I'm, I'm a bit cautious with the term of managing expectation because that almost suggests that the families and survivors are just receivers of information. So that's not, not quite the impression that I would like to give here because it is actually for the benefits of the families that practitioner work in the area and they have a voice too and the idea is not to disempower survivors. So for me, a core message would be that uh, what we should refrain from doing is inexpert exhumation because that could result in commingling incomplete um a collection of, of human remains and uh, evidence material and that can actually jeopardize identification and, and the criminal investigation process should there be one so that's really um important to as a message to convey to the to the surviving population and then seek to find mechanisms uh, to do it properly uh, because improper recovery bodies can also mean that there's disrespectful handling public viewings, and that in return can really exasperate um, family trauma, and, and we have to avoid that at all cost. So I suspect, I mean, it's always a difficult thing to um, balance speed um, with, with good results, and I think we, that's just the balancing act that needs to be struck. Of course, of course. Thanks, thanks, Melanie. I want to pick up on um, on the the use of, of evidence from Asquias in prosecution in particular, obviously you've touched on it a couple of times already. Um, so as some of our listeners will know, evidence from the exhumation of mass graves and the identification of remains is at times used in prosecution. I think probably the best well-known instance of that is the International Criminal Tribunal for the former Yugoslavia, so the ICTY. I know that you have done uh, um, some research around that. Can you tell us a bit more about how evidence from mass graves was used in that context? Yes, so you're right. Um, the significance of mass grave evidence was really quickly realised by the prosecutor of the Yugoslav Tribunal, but also um, for the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. Um, and so if we look at uh, compelling cases to demonstrate the use and importance of mass grave evidence, then I, I'd point your listeners to Kersic and Karadzic in relation to the Srebrenica massacre. And here the mass graves really have a, a shock factor as well. Uh, this year is the 25th anniversary of the Srebrenica ma massacre, 
So um, when these investigations started in and around Srebrenica in 1996, um, the ICTY exhumations were really conducted at, at multiple sites. And so what their investigative results were trying to achieve was, I mean, firstly, to confirm the location of the actual killing sites and the subsequent burial sites. So that was important information that was required. And through that, uh, corroborate the victim and witness accounts of those massacres to sort of demonstrate that the um, oral witnesses had actually physical evidence um, at their disposable uh, at their disposal to actually verify their accounts. And then it's it's about determining the number of victims that um, were in these mass graves. And, and numbers of victims matter in international criminal trials, particularly when you have genocide trials, because the prosecutor needs to establish that a substantial part of a group was targeted. Um, so that's why an accurate count of victims is important. Um, similarly, um, there is an effort to sort of understand fully what the cause and the time of death was to ensure that the mass graves really come uh, from, from the conflict in question and from the time in question, the time frame in question, and are not perhaps some historical um, mass graves. And the other thing that was really pronounced in, in a Srebrenica investigation was the determination of the sex of the victims because it transpired that um, the targeted group or the targeted um, people in these mass graves were predominantly boys and men. And that, that was something that came out of the mass grave investigation. Um, and ideally, there is also the determination of the identity of victims. And that's actually an ongoing process um, with the help of DNA analysis. And in Bosnia, this is still continuing to this day. Um, so DNA is an identification efforts are important. Although in international criminal trials, perhaps not so important as in an individual murder case in a domestic setting, just simply because when we talk about genocide, we're talking about that group composition. Uh, but nonetheless, identification gives you the icing on the cake. But all of these activities are essentially to identify links to the perpetrators. So linking the crime base, the crime scene to the uh, defendant in question. Um, and I, I think, you know, if you look at the excavations and the examinations, they really showed a lot of important things. They showed different ages. So children were targeted and in Srebrenica, some died through gunshot wounds. Um, some had their hands bound with, with wire behind their backs. Some bodies had um, blindfolded on the real, the, the human remains were real that they were blindfolded. And, and all of this information can come out of a mass grave, which can be really used to confirm on the crime base and help establish the link, as I said, to the accused. Of course, I wanted to pick up on um, on one thing that you, you mentioned there, Melanie, which is sort of the time frame. So obviously the ICTY started its work in the mid 1990s. Um, in your view and sort of from, from your own research, do you think the approach to mass grave evidence in the courtroom has changed um, in these sort of intervening years? Um, I, I think you still need to do the traditional forensic archaeology, forensic anthropology and forensic pathology work because you need to get um, the information out of the ground. Um, I suspect what, what, has, what has changed is the revolution of DNA. So, you know, in the later cases of Karadzic and Mladic, DNA identification has just added further weight to, to all of this evidence. And so DNA analysis has been a powerful 
tool and can complement these sort of pathology, anthropology or archaeology, uh, medical legal sciences that underpin it. Um, so that's um, probably something um, that, that was also shown in the Mladich trial, because um, the, the case of Mladich was actually reopened in order to incorporate newly found evidence from the, and I can't pronounce this very well, but I think it's Tomashika gravesite. So uh, expert evidence was was presented at that trial because, and because it was deemed to be so important. So whilst DNA obviously has had an effect, you still have the traditional sort of gravesite work that's still really important and featured again in 2014. Of course, of course. Um, in terms of those um, expert witnesses then, Melanie, one of the things that particularly interests me is how forensic evidence is translated in the courtroom. So how what I would imagine to be quite technical information is communi communicated um, in a way that's clear and meaningful to, um, to a courtroom. Could you say a bit more about that? Okay, yes, so the um, ICTY has um, obviously its rules of procedure and evidence. And although not explicitly defined, an expert witness is someone who possesses the relevant specific knowledge and experience or skills to help a trial chamber come to a better understanding and conclusion, as you said, on a, on a technical issue where they themselves may not have the expertise. So what happens? So the quali qualifications of an expert are typically summarised in the expert's CV, and that's submitted to the court. And then experts, unlike your ordinary witness of fact, um, they are allowed to state opinion and inferences and conclusions on matter, matters that come within their, their expertise. And for mass grave excavations, so the experts that have been called are anthropologists, pathologists, archaeologists, but also, you know, those who can um, give updates on the DNA identification process and demographers. And of course, the evidence can be tested in, in court. Um, and, and I suppose that's where, you know, the, the technical expertise is scrutinised. Uh, so the op opposing party has to indicate whether it intends to accept the expert witness report and whether it wishes to cross-examine the expert witness and whether they have any sort of um, disputes around the qualifications uh, or the relevance of the witness statement. So that's something that um, experts are acutely aware of when they when they go um, to testify in trial, and 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 generally their reports already summarise all the information quite neatly, and then they talk about the reports a little bit more and try and formulate that into lay language. But I would also say that the judges in these international tribunals are really accustomed to hearing complex expert evidence. Uh, and the judges also have a degree of knowledge of forensic science just by virtue of the work and the experience that they have done previously, usually. And, and in the end, it is down to them to decide on the pervasive value of the evidence. And so the clearer an expert can make that evidence, um, the more pervasive value it may, it may attract. attract. Okay, thanks, Melanie. That, that's really, really interesting. I wanted to move on a little bit, I guess, now to the specific issue of the right to truth. So um, what we see in some of the mobilisation efforts by um, families of those who have been disappeared and, and buried in mass graves is the adoption of a human rights framework. Specifically, uh, we see some families use the language of, of the right to truth. 
can you tell me a bit about your view on the emergence of this right, what its sort of current status is, and the extent to which it is utilised by, by families of the missing? Yeah, and it's apt to reflect uh, on that, Lauren, because this week saw the Right to the Truth Day. Um, so to me, the Right to the Truth is, is a really fascinating right or norm or concept, depending on, on your position. And perhaps I should explain what I mean um, by that. But I think we can safely say that in, in the circumstances of atrocity and, and forced disappearance especially, that there is a clear human and psychological interest and need on behalf of the victims and the relatives to know what happened to their loved ones. And so I think clearly for most people that would justify a moral right to the truth. Um, so this, if it's translated into a right, then would place an obligation on others to provide an objectively convincing and authoritative account. And that's, I think, what the right to the truth is about. And this background moral right, interestingly, comes from international humanitarian law, so from the law of armed conflict, particular if your listeners are interested, Article 32 and Article 33 of the Additional Protocol to the Geneva Convention, Additional Protocol 1, I should say. And that's been taken up over the last decades and been given legal and quasi-legal form on the international plane. So our best example now is the International Convention for the Protection of All Persons from Enforced Disappearance, and that's a human rights instrument, where you will find it expressed, you will find the right to the truth expressed in background aspirational texts and guidance notes and, and cases. So it's a combination of soft law there as well. So whilst I think the rationale for the right is, is absolutely understandable and gives uh, interesting recourse to the, to the, for the victims, the question then turns to what is this uh, and what is the content of the right? And from, from our research, I think the following considerations seem to be really significant. So I'll, I'll give you three, um, three elements here. So firstly, I think um, the right to the truth is a right of victims and their relatives to a narrative and explanation of what happened. And this narrative and explanation needs to be authoritative and there needs to be some involvement of the victims in the process of arriving at this narrative. That's the first point. Secondly, I think um, this right is not reducible to just the victim's right, though, of course, victims' interests are at the centre of it, because the right to the truth has an important public or social aspect in the sense that its satisfaction requires an independent state duty to effectively investigate and report atrocities and disappearance. Uh, and that applies independently of a victim's wish uh, and, and provides space for, for public discourse. So, so for example, NGO in, intervention. So the investigation and the report must meet criteria of authority and um, impartiality, which not, may just not be the same as being a convincing um, form of victim's perspective given. So that's the second element. And then finally, the investigation and the report, um, we believe, must refer not only to the details relating to the individual's experience, but also to the political and social context and to the chain of command. So here you really need to sort of delve a little bit deeper and give further explanation whilst keeping um, the authority and impartiality of, of the investigation going. So those are the three aspects. Um, and the right to the truth clearly links to, to other rights, um, such as legal enforcement of the rights to justice and the right to reparation. But I think 
um, they whilst they're link, it's not necessarily merely instrumental, the link. So, for example, knowing the truth is a precondition for justice or knowing the truth can be a, a form of reparation. But the claim we're making is that there exists a valid independent ground for a right and a duty to know the truth. Um, and, and, and in those circumstances of atrocity crimes, for example, and this ground has a very, very high normative force uh, capable of overriding other factors, which perhaps um, apply to other rights. So discussion on the right to the truth explicitly and implicitly can be found in, in various fora. So we have the positive human rights law example that I've given you, but also the investigative duty has been expressed at the American and European human rights courts. Uh, which is attached to the right to life and, and other rights. And then if you broaden it out, and I know you're a transitional justice scholar as well, it does apply to uh, transitional justice mechanisms more broadly. So it may explain and justify the uh, place and role of different truth and reconciliation procedures and also form a basis for analysis and, and critique of the success of these mechanisms. And, and I think it has a role and presence in the international criminal law as well. Um, including the International Criminal Court, particularly when guiding or influencing the prosecutor and uh, the judges in their exercise and various discretions of arriving at the truth. Where do you see then, Melanie, forensic scientists fitting into this picture? So what is their role in terms of advancing or, or realising the right to truth? Well, as, as the uh, Srebrenica examples have shown, I think they have a really important role in, in the process. Uh, and I think this is also denominated by the word forensic. So forensic as a definition is, is com commonly understood as denoting the application of a scientific process on, and scientific techniques to, to the investigation of crime. So forensic science is designed to retrieve and analyze evidence for the purpose of official judicial scrutiny by employing those scientific methods. And the use of that evidence in a court system will mean that it is tested uh, with regards to the validity and the probative value. And usually it has to meet certain admissibility criteria. So the use of forensic sciences would therefore seemingly denote an efficiently recognised standard of evidence collection, which can be an important part of an investi investigation and effective investigation and therefore also the right to the truth elements. I suspect the question that's really um, come to the fore is, you know, what, how important is a positive identification? And a positive identification of human remains requires the consistency between the anti-mortem and the post-mortem data. And that may not always include DNA. Um, so that if, if there aren't any discrepancy that cannot be explained, then you may achieve a positive identification. And that's important for the return of the human remains and uh, the satisfaction of that element of the, of, the, of the right. But importantly, an identification is officially certified by an appropriate authority uh, through, for example, the issuing of a death certificate. So in that sense, forensic experts can really offer important information on the identification of the victims, but also you know, the wider circumstances under which an individual has died, um, as I said, were they blindfolded? Were they, did they have gunshot wounds? Where were they found? And what happened generally to them? So that's really important information that forensic experts can reveal. So, uh, Melanie, what you were just saying then, that 
in terms of forensic scientists providing information as to, for example, um, the cause and manner of death. For you then, does that give them a role that feeds into um, the development or uh, the development of the sort of broader social or political truth, um, the sort of more contextual understanding of what happened? Uh, well, I, th I think it does. Um, I mean, uh, forensic sciences are just one element in the process. Um, and I think um, it needs to be seen in that context. But mm -hmm. if you have, if we stay with the example of the mass grave, because that's where we, where we, what we were discussing earlier, then you can see how an investigation of a mass grave can reveal a lot of important aspects that would feed into an effective investigation conducted on behalf of, of, a, of a state, for example, or a criminal investigation to reveal that sort of truth. And uh, this is partly, I think, also why truth and reconciliation commissions have um, pointed to the importance of forensic science. And I think the Peruvian one is a very good example of this because they really wanted to push, uh, in my understanding, for, for forensic sciences to be used in that particular way because it can just sort of give, an, give a good understanding of the scale and the pattern of the abuses that, that took place mm -hmm. just by virtue of finding these um, sites and then, um, you know, revealing the way in which these these uh, individuals had, had died and who they were and where they came from. Yeah, that, that's, that's, a, that's an example I will need to uh, look at more actually, um, Melanie. It's not one that I'm particularly familiar with, um, so I'll have to look that up. Um, in terms of the role then of forensic scientists, in advancing the right to truth, what are the main sort of limitations or barriers that they face in doing that? Yeah, um, a little bit like what we discussed earlier, the reasons for the need for scientific examinations and the provision of anti-mortem data. And so that, that, that needs to be explained and that needs to be understood and that needs to be done in a very sensitive manner so as not to um, re-traumatise or aggravate the situation. So the provision of such data has, has clear privacy implications and appropriate safeguards and legal compliance must be in place. So that's very much important to, to safeguard the, the privacy aspects of, of victims. And again, there I would like to, to stress two points, if I may. So explaining the processes of identification and data processing to family members and indeed the wider community to generate acceptance is really important. And at the same time, it's important to keep the family continuously informed of the decisions in relation to post-mortem examinations and the results of, of, of such uh, examinations. And um, then also, you know, having the appropriate family and support mechanisms in place so that you can have referral options. And I think, you know, one of the most important things is, for example, that the families need to be informed before the media is informed. Uh, so those those considerations are important. But uh, at the same time, I also think that um, it's worth stressing that identification may not always be realistic and it may not even always be desirable. And I think um, if we look at examples such as Cambodia, you know, there is no attempt at scientific systematic identification. But at the same time, there are processes and commemorative, commemorative processes and memorialization, that's a difficult word, word mm -hmm. memorialization processes for um, those that lost their life during the Khmer Rouge era. Why do you you think there that there hasn't been a systematic um, process of exhumation in Cambodia? 
Um, I, so firstly, I mean, if you look at the history of Cambodia, um, in 1979, it's believed that a third of the population had died. So I think there was, there was just firstly no capacity uh, on the ground for uh, any systematic scientific identification. There were a lot more pressing issues. Um, there were some documentation and mapping exercises that were going on later on, uh, particularly in the 1990s and the early 2000s. There was a genocide uh, program that was run by Yale University and the Duc Documentation Center of Cambodia was really instrumental in doing mapping. Um, and they did some probing of mass graves, but there was no scientific um, identification as such. There were some interesting displays, um, particularly in Tulsleng prison. Um, that's in Phnom Penh. It's one of the major um, dark tourism visitor sites in Phnom Penh. Um, it used to be a, a prison, and there, forensic scientists and the documentation center sort of had a display where they could show, for example, blunt force trauma on on crania. So that was done. Uh, I suspect. So for me, interestingly, that that question arose when the extraordinary chambers in the court of Cambodia um, started operation. You know, to what extent would they use or uh, try and engage um, systematic? Um, mass grave investigations. Um, it, in the end, it didn't happen, um, partly because I think there was not not necessarily the public appetite for it. Um, secondly, you know, there's a huge resource consideration that um, these scientific investigations have. And finally, I think from a, from a pure prosecutorial point of view, I think it was thought that that information wouldn't wouldn't give the um, wouldn't reveal evidence that would be useful to actually link the accused to the crime sites and, and therefore of not such a great value for the Cambodian context in terms of the prosecutions. Um, so that's that's where we're at. Um, what that means from a capacity building perspective is naturally a, dif a different matter. Um, so there are those that would argue that this was a golden opportunity to seek to build capacity in the country in terms of forensic uh, sciences, but it hasn't hasn't happened as part of the extraordinary chambers and the courts of Cambodia. Thank you. Thanks, Nani. I wanted to come back a little bit to, I guess, the relationship between sort of science and truth. So there exists a sort of assumption, I guess, um, among some that forensic science provides this pathway to a sort of single objective scientific truth. Um, so, for example, we see language about uh, the remains of the disappeared being described as witnesses from the grave. And I think sometimes this language can maybe overlook the fact that those remains do only speak through others, through those who um, examine and interpret the remains. What do you think of this notion of science as providing an objective truth? And what do you think are the key things to think about here? Um, it's, a, it's a big question, and I, and I don't think I can fully answer it but but here's my attempt so from a from a methodological and procedural point of view i mean there are protocols in place that dictate how forensic sciences ought to be done but no matter how rigorously you apply these protocols and standards you know you will always get the post positive this criticism, I suspect, is what you you voiced, you know, that dispute the existence of some objectively ascertainable truth. Um, because even if scientific methods were 
really unimpeachable, there are still some contextual variables which you can't overly control and they can distort and influence the findings. So in other words, we cannot bracket the human being out of the process at any, any given time. And that includes scientists, just as it includes other human beings like victims and prosecutors and perpetrators who will have their different view of what happened. So, um, but it's been well documented that the wider dictates and demands of the criminal investigation and the conduct of scientific inquiries uh, uh, um, can, can be related. So if there is a particular criminal investigation that wants to concentrate on a particular um, mass grave, then that is what the sciences will reveal and it will not concentrate on another mass grave. But then there's also other biases uh, that are well discussed and well understood, I think, in the, in the sciences, whether, whether conscious or, or unconscious biases. And processes can be put in place to, to mitigate the impact of subjectivity bias and, and particularly also different levels of professional expertise, where the people come from, what they've done in the past. Um, and of course, I would also say if, if you rely heavily on the forensic sciences and the forensic truth, then you know that is also uh, put to the test before before a court system or before a truth and reconciliation commission as well. So there's that element of verification. Um, and so I sometimes think it's not so different this forensic process to the legal process insofar as as the legal system is also predicated on the belief that a truth is is discernible. And again, we've developed um, informed systems that may operate with particular rules of procedure and evidence, um, and they are tried and tested fact-finding rules and processes. There are some variations between the legal systems, but I think at the end they are they are trying or they are believed to, to be geared towards revealing the truth. Now, the outcome may be a particular type of truth, and within the systems different notions of truth or perhaps a different emphasis can appear, but the outcome for each of these legal systems and mechanisms supposes independent fact-finders uh, with the ability to render reasonable decisions and authoritative reports or judgments, and, and they should be independent and justified. So I think there, there are these overlapping levels of scrutiny that hopefully um, give, give credibility to what the scientists do, and they are there to actually test these, um, these variables as well and, and exclude as many of them to ensure that there is a is a, as truthful an account as, as possible, but again, it is only one slice of of an investigation and and one way of looking at it. And how, depending on how you look at it, you you may find slightly different emphasis in your results. Of course, thank, thanks, Melanie. I one of the things I particularly wanted to ask you about. Obviously, in much of this conversation, we've spoken about about the right to truth and the importance of that, and how often. For some families, if those missing, um, there's a particular call to to a full truth about what happened. Um, in the context of recovering the disappeared, though, sometimes this does require the use of amnesty or a limited immunity to facilitate recovery. So by way of example, if we look at the Northern Ireland context, the majority of those who were disappeared during the conflict here have been recovered by the Independent Commission for the Location of Victims' Remains. Uh, the legislation which established that commission created uh, what is effectively a limited immunity. So information provided to the commission can only be used for locating remains and it can't be used in prosecution. Um, so as a result of that process, 
Um, many remains have been located. However, the families of the disappeared receive quite a sort of narrow or geographical truth, so they know where their loved ones were buried, but little more about the broader context. How do you think these sorts of amnesty or limited immunity processes fit into this uh, broader landscape of the right to truth? It's a great question, Lauren, and I'm not an expert on Northern Ireland, but amnesties crop up as an issue in multiple transitional justice contexts. So, for example, Sri Lanka has had is dealing with the same issue where missing persons institutes can um, do a certain amount of uh, missing persons cases and finding, but they're not allowed to give the information to prosecutorial mechanisms. And a similar setup is contemplated in Colombia for uh, one of their institutions. And some would say that these are appropriate compromises um, and that limited amnesties may be really important because they incentivize the disclosure of the truth. So, for example, there's this creative plea bargaining where, where you know, a defendant can trade punishment for, for information. But I think there are also lim limits to this because um, you, you, you clearly shouldn't forestall the disclosure for the truth. Uh, and that we can see in particularly in relation to the right to the truth um, when we have victims and relatives and they don't. They don't get the information that they need because that in itself has been deemed by the European Court of Human Rights and also the Inter-American Court of Human Rights as potentially uh, being inhuman or degrading treatment. Um, so the question is whether the little or more about what happened to them, you know, just knowing a little bit but not all that much, is sufficient to safeguard against the level of suffering that would amount to inhuman and degrading treatment. So I think that's the question number one, you know, that we need to need to consider the individual implications for it. But then uh, there's also the, the public aspect to it. So if you give only narrow information, as you call it, then that raises the social or public element of the right to the truth. So for individuals, the main support for right to the truth comes from the moral need to know. So it's not to cause the continued psychological and phys physical suffering that comes from, from uncertainty. And that's been well, well described. But there's also the public rationale, and that also comes from an inherent moral value associated with the truth, but for the purpose of upholding um, the rule of law and the idea of a, of a just polity and very often also a democratic society. And this is why I believe an understanding of the broader, broader context of disappearances forms part of the content of the right to the truth. And I think these individual and these collective public considerations, you know, regardless of whether they are enshrined in hard or in soft law, will really be an important balancing factor in, in, in legislating for any sort of amnesty um, and are probably the discussions that underlie what, what, what happened in, in, um, in Northern Ireland and, and they need to be balanced appropriately. Um, okay, so uh, for my final question, Melanie, then uh, could you say a little bit about how the use of mass grave evidence has impacted upon or shape transitional justice more broadly. So just what are your reflections on that? Yeah, um, it, it's, this is also a great question because again, it gives me the opportunity to sort of outline the importance of mass graves in, in different processes. So uh, in Bosnia, we have seen how mass graves are really playing a crucial role in 
the international criminal justice endeavor that is mass graves. So a lot of money was pumped into, uh, you know, those investigations and the results have featured in the international criminal tribunals. But then if we zoom out to Rwanda, a different story, far less resources, and we continue to find a lot of mass graves. And so there, the importance of mass graves for a transitional justice process is not concentrated so much on, on justice as in accountability and perpetrator accountability. But there is more, it's more sort of societal, how do we get to grips with all these mass graves? And um, is identification something that we need to contemplate? And how does it sit within the wider narrative of the of the country is and, and, the, and the genocide and how that's framed? And then if we look at something uh, or an instance like Cambodia, where um, people are accustomed to living side by side with these mass graves and with the stupas and the commemorative activities, then again, it reveals a different, um, mass graves have a, are a different substrate for our transitional justice processes. So what I mean to say is that, um, you know, mass graves have, have a long life in, in the sense that they are sites of, of, of finding and sites of investigations, but they're also sites for commemoration and um, their scars on the geographical landscape, but also the societal landscape and, and the various narratives that, that, that come uh, out of that and the transitional justice process in general. Thank and you so much, Melanie. And maybe if I can just add um, what, why I think that the Mass Grave Protection Guidelines project is so important is to ensure that whatever we do, we safeguard the mass graves to facilitate whatever the society and the transitional justice process needs, whether that is a, an effective investigation that leads to criminal accountability or that is concentrating on identification processes and both, or uh, whether it's much more geared towards cultural appropriate um, commemoration practices. But it's just about making sure that we safeguard um, that substrate uh, for, for for the most appropriate transitional justice processes that those societies need to go forward. That is great. Thank you, Melanie. That's been a really uh, fascinating yeah. discussion. Um, Brilliant. Um, thanks so much for your support. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to LawPod, an informed take on current events, brought to you by law students and staff at Queen's University Belfast. This episode was produced by Richard Somerville. Our theme music is by Colonel Chocolate and the Justice Triangle. LawPod is funded by the Queen's University Law School. Thanks to our guest, Dr. Melanie Klinkner. Uh, please follow us on Twitter at QUB LawPod. For more information, you can also visit our website, lawpod.org. And please have a look in the show notes for more information about the topics covered today. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I am Lauren Dempster. This was Lawpod. Well